0: And in the research looking at stillbirth with post-dates, there is no evidence at all in any of that research that it's a placenta problem. So, of course, nobody knows how to support physiology or understands physiology. So when women are coming wanting a physiological birth in a setting where it doesn't happen and nobody knows how to support it, they're almost set up to failure. And then the women are made to feel like they failed, not the system. When it was the system that failed, not the women. Students are assessed based on how well they do the interventions. That's it. They're not assessed on how well they are with women, on how they advocate for women, because that's not what the system wants. It's it's crazy.
1: I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Tricia Ludwig, certified nurse midwife
2: and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's
1: dispel the myths and get down to birth.
0: I'm Rachel Reid. I am a doctor of philosophy, not a medical doctor, and my background is midwifery. Um, I trained in the UK where it's separate from nursing, so I did a Bachelor of Science in just midwifery in order to become a midwife. Practised in the UK in a range of settings, moved over to Australia, um, went into private practice in Australia after a few years here. Got into research and academia, and that's kind of where I've been, is practising as a midwife whilst also being an academic for many years. I no longer practice as a midwife in terms of attending births and I really focus on research and education at the moment. That's where I am at the moment.
2: In the UK, were you practicing in hospitals or home or how how was that done?
0: Yeah, so it's a bit different in the UK, practiced in the public system, the National Health Service, and it it isn't there isn't a distinction between hospital and, and home. As a midwife, your your role is to provide care wherever the woman needs care so I worked in a hospital setting and I worked as a community midwife and as a community midwife I attended births wherever women chose to birth so most women birthed in the local hospital so I followed them in there and other women birthed at home so it really was around so there isn't kind of the and when I came to Australia that was a real shock to me that there was home birth midwives and there was hospital midwives whereas in the UK you're a midwife and even as a hospital midwife, you could get called out into the community to attend a home birth if there wasn't enough midwives to attend that birth. So it was just part of being a midwife was going to people's homes and supporting them there.
2: And you are also the author of a fabulous book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, which I am currently reading and uh, loving. Highly recommend that book, though. It's fabulous. Thank you. So tell us a little bit more about um, anything else you want to share with us before
0: we get into the topic for today about yourself. Yeah, well, I guess I forgot. I forgot to say I'm an author, didn't I? When that's actually most of <laughs> yeah. what I do at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wrote Why Induction Matters some years back for a publisher. Um, so Reclaiming Childbirth as a Writage right was really, I guess, the book that, that came from my my heart. Um It was part of my PhD and really encompasses what I learned during my PhD, during my practice as a midwife. And I've tried to weave together all of the research and the history or her stories, I call it, um, to explain what's happening now and also to really look at how we can reclaim childbirth and particularly childbirth physiology, although I do talk about medical birth, how we can reclaim that because that's, that really needs to happen. You know, we've lost sight of, physiology. We've lost sight of, of birth as anything more than just an event where a baby comes out of a woman often removed from the woman. Um, and I'm just currently finishing up my first online course, which will be just purely childbirth physiology. So I felt that that was a good place to start in terms of online course courses, because that's the fundamentals. If we don't understand childbirth physiology, we can't understand pathology, we can't understand complications, and we can't understand how interventions alter physiology.
1: So Rachel, before we started today, I told you there were so many things we would love to speak with you about that we need to try to narrow it down to a couple of things. And I said, the first thing we'd love to start with is the aging placenta. And you said, well, it'll be a very short conversation because there's no such thing. And I said, "Absolutely, (laughs) hold your thought because I want to get all this in our episode. Please let's pick up from there and explain to us why the aging placenta is not a thing. There's no such thing. No.
0: So I actually looked at this when I wrote, my Book Why Induction Matters because this is that the common reason that women are given for inducing once they get past this particular date, the placenta somehow turns off, you know, it's got a best before date. That's how it's presented. Um, so I kind of tr- and there's very little research around this, it's just something, as with most practices, that's just cultural, and this is what's said, and then people hear it said and say the same thing, and nobody actually stops and goes, hang on, let's actually have a look at this.
2: Is there actually any research on it? I, I have not really been able to find anything.
0: No, I think I ended up finding maybe one or two articles that were about the physiology of the placenta. And there's debate. You know, on the one side, there's we do know that the placenta changes through pregnancy. Throughout pregnancy, it it shifts and changes because it's got different functions. You know, the baby's growing and getting bigger. So there's different things that the placenta needs to do. So the placenta does Definitely change through pregnancy. Um, but it's not aging. It's not stopping functioning. And we've we've got into this situation where yes, placentas absolutely can, and I wouldn't call it aging, I would say their function becomes less effective, particularly with growth-restricted babies where there's actually a pathology happening. And what happens there is the blood vessels you know, stop functioning. And you can see that afterwards in a placenta where you've got little lumps of kind of gritty dead blood vessels in that placenta that tells you that that placenta was some of the blood vessels were dying off. Um, But that's not aging. You know, that's not associated with gestation. You can see that at 37 weeks and yet a 43 week placenta cannot have those, you know, little dead blood vessels.
2: That's a complication of pregnancy, not a aging placenta. It's a exactly the diagnosis of intrauterine growth restriction, which comes from
0: the placenta being compromised. It's a true medical issue. Yes, exactly. And this is why we need to understand physiology to understand that's a pathology. And you also, you also run into this, you know, really conflicting messages that what we're saying is that the placenta stops functioning so you need to be induced to get the baby out before the placenta completely switches off and then at the same time we're saying but you need to be induced if your pregnancy carries on because your baby gets really big and doesn't come out so either the placenta stops working in which case the baby's compromised or the placenta keeps growing a big healthy baby now what we know is absolutely at 43 weeks your baby is likely to be much bigger than it was at 40 weeks still not too big to birth but the placenta will carry on sustaining that baby throughout the pregnancy so yeah placentas don't age i guess in a nutshell
1: well um is there any way to know if the placenta is i mean in the case of intrauterine growth restriction you are saying there can be signs of aging on a placenta that's a medical indication of something is there a way to know in pregnancy if that's the case because that thought or that concern alone would have any pregnant woman wondering well i don't want to take any chances that could be me how would they know
0: yes yeah, so really in pregnancy what we've done with antenatal care is we've kind of got ourselves as care providers in between the woman and the baby and kind of set ourselves as the experts in terms of whether what's happening is healthy or not healthy when The baby is growing inside the woman. And if the woman is connected to her baby, women absolutely know when things are not right, that their babies, one of the key indicators is the baby slowing their movements down. If the baby's not getting well oxygenated through the placenta, then what they'll do is conserve energy. So they'll slow down their movements. So babies will give lots of signs before, you know, it's really in a really bad situation because they communicate with their mother so if a woman's connected in with her baby and really trusting her instincts and listening and and understanding what's normal for her baby and not normal she'll get signs that that baby's slowing down and telling her that you know i can't move quite as much here and then that's the time to then reach out for medical support to have an ultrasound which doesn't look at the size of the baby so we get really hung up on sizes of babies, which ultrasounds can't actually tell us accurately. What needs to happen is they need to look at the placenta. So look at the blood flow through the placental, the umbilical cord, and look at what's happening there, because that will you know, tell you whether or not this baby's getting adequate oxygen through the cord. So there are signs. And
2: I think what happens is the idea of intrauterine growth restriction sort of gets lumped in with just becoming past your due date. They're not one in the same thing, right? No. Going past term does not mean you're going to have intrauterine growth restriction, but they seem to sort of get lumped in together because the longer you're pregnant, the higher the chance of, you know, developing a little bit of high blood pressure or the possibility of preeclampsia, um, and then that also kind of gets lumped in with this IUGR idea, and then it's all kind of blamed on the placenta.
1: Yeah. So placentas calcify, and that's a normal part of the life cycle of the placenta. If they calcify, that is still a normal condition that would not warrant an induction, correct? Correct.
0: Yeah, correct. What you're actually wanting to know in terms of whether or not there's an indication to induce or not to induce is, is this baby getting adequate oxygenation through their placenta at the moment? You can have calcification and still have adequate oxygenation through to the baby because all calcification means is that there's some blood vessels have, you know, stopped functioning and then calcified. Now, I used to see lots of calcification on placentas working in England, in the north of England, where we had really socially deprived demographic and there was lots and lots of smoking. So it was really common for placentas to be really gritty, you know, like lots and lots of calcification in those placentas and babies tended to be smaller. So, and it's not about, it's not about aging, I think is the key thing. It's about placental function and that's about smoking, which damages blood vessels and the placenta would compensate for that to a certain degree. Um, but you'd have calcification in those placentas.
2: Many, many normal, healthy pregnancies have placentas that have calcifications. We, When we examine a placenta after birth, you, you almost always see them, some much yep. more than others. And if you see a lot of them, then you go back and sort of review in your mind, did this mom have any risk factors? Did she have high blood pressure in pregnancy? Was she a smoker? Were there any signs of intrauterine um, growth restriction? And most of the time they're not. But it isn't the whole point is that it isn't the placenta that's aging; it is the smoking or the hypertension that is causing the placenta to not function as well, which is causing the intrauterine growth restriction, which is then being coined in a malfunctioning placenta it's It's not a malfunctioning placenta first, it's the chicken or the
1: egg. it's the yeah. problem underneath it. It's a symptom of something else being wrong,
2: yes, yeah but healthy placentas do not age. That's the the takeaway.
1: Absolutely. I've had clients who have been told such impossible things as well, the placenta fails at that point. And the placenta, um, what was the other one that's so common? It fails. It stops working. And I always have to say to my clients, it has its own life cycle. It doesn't just up and stop working. It actually has a full life cycle. There is no justification for for it to suddenly switch into another mode as it does say when the baby is out and obtaining oxygen from another source, but it's such a terrifying thing to hear. And the problem is there's this implication that, well, let's just induce you and not take chances. And no one is ever doing the research on what happens to all the women we're inducing no one's ever looking at that.
0: No, because we're, we're focused very much on that kind of short-term risk assessment that is organizational risk. So it's this huge generalized risk assessment of one very small thing that potentially could happen, even though it's less than 1%. And that's the focus, not the much more likely thing, which, you know, if, if you're being induced, having your first baby, for example, you know, you're about 30 to 40% More likely to have a cesarean section with your first baby, not if it's not your first baby, which is where those stats get a bit muddled. So if this is your first baby, you're more likely to have a cesarean section. Now, in your next pregnancy, now you are more at risk because your placenta may attach over the scar, which then does compromise the placenta. So, you know, making that decision, you need to really think about future. But that's not taken into account when we're looking at, you know, offering an induction for post dates. And the placenta is often just given as the, the rationale, because when women say, well, well, why, then that's the rationale is that the placenta stops working.
2: It's like the whole thing about your, if we don't induce you, your baby might die. So now they're just saying your placenta might quit on you. It's almost like it's a easier way of saying it, but we can't have this conversation without talking about the, possibility of stillbirth. And the reason that many women are pushed to be induced is because of that possibility of stillbirth. But what we know about stillbirth is very little, under, we have very little understanding of the causes of stillbirth, but we do know it's not because the placenta just
0: stops functioning. No, no, absolutely not. And and in the research looking at stillbirth with post-dates, there is no evidence at all in any of that research that it's a placenta problem. So for example, the big Cochrane review that looked at it, the, the group of um, babies who were stillborn there was a high percentage of those babies, a high proportion of them had congenital abnormalities, you know, but they didn't find it wasn't about the placenta. So we've just made that connection. I think you're right because it's just easier as a provider to say to a woman, well, you we need to induce you because you've reached this particular date that we've imposed on your pregnancy. And if there's any questions about it as well, because placenta stopped working, that's kind of a really simple explanation to
1: give. Why does the stillbirth rate, why do we think it does go up um, between especially 42 and 43 weeks? It goes up, I mean, it's still an extremely low number, but percentage-wise, it starts to go up quite a bit between 42 and 43 in particular. Why does it? Do we? I mean, if it's congenital, I don't know why that would happen so late in the game Um, why not at 39 weeks or 40 weeks as much as after 42? What could be the relationship between that higher stillbirth rate after 42 weeks and whatever is going on that's not related to the placenta? What could it be? Do we know?
0: Well, nobody's really looked at that. So it's a really important question, isn't it? And nobody's really looked at that. There are some theories. So what I'm about to say here is absolutely not supported by evidence. This is me you know, thinking perhaps this is... So what we do know, there's an increased congenital abnormality Um, and babies who have congenital abnormalities are more likely to be born premature and more likely to be born post-term. And that makes sense if you think about how labour begins because it's the baby that initiates the start of labour. So the baby sends a message to the placenta to say, all right, off you go, tell tell my mother I'm ready now. And then that kind of starts that cascade of changes that have to happen for for labour to start. So if there's a problem with the baby, maybe the baby's not signalling properly you know maybe there's something happening there with that signal who knows and the, the problem is that with a lot of a lot of things to do with birth and pregnancy and breastfeeding we often don't know and we probably will never know the answer you know so all we can do is be absolutely honest with parents and say we actually don't know why there's a very slight increase you know it goes from 0.03 to 0.3% you know if induction versus waiting so it's still very very small but there is an increase and we need to be honest and say we don't know why you know and and also to individualize those risks for women so for a woman who naturally gestates longer in her you know women in her family gestate longer then this is not going This very unlikely this is a pathology that she's gone to 42 43 weeks you know I looked after a, a doula once and and the women in her family there was one who went to 44 weeks um so she was not expecting to, have, and she'd gone to 42 weeks with her pregnancies and 43 weeks. We were not expecting to see her baby before 42 weeks. And if she had have had a baby at 38 weeks, we would have all been a bit, oh, I wonder what's happened there. Is there percent potentially a problem? Versus a woman who's had all of her babies at 38, you know, 39 weeks, 40 weeks, and now we're getting on to 42 weeks. I would be asking the question, what's different here? Is there something happening that we need to pay attention to? Because this is not her natural gestation.
1: Don't women also get those genes from their fathers?
0: I don't know, but they get the genes for breach from the fathers. I'm not sure about um, hmm.
1: them. As you said, it's a theory worth considering. Hmm. Well, one thing we
0: do know though, but just to, to
2: go back to that point for a second, we, we don't really know um, what causes those late, late term stillbirths, but we do know And we have the evidence to say that inducing early does not prevent them, right? The ARRIVE trial says inducing at 39 weeks does not change the rate of stillbirth. So we don't know why, but we do know that the answer is not induction. So this we can just take off the table this fear that the longer we're pregnant, the higher the chance of having a stillbirth because our placenta is going to expire which is what women are told all the time.
1: Yep. And Rachel, you mentioned earlier that it's a little bit of a risk. If a woman has had a C-section and the placenta attaches, I guess, an anterior placenta over the scar. Can we just explain for our listeners exactly why that's a less than optimal situation? Is it because there's scar tissue where there would typically be open capillaries giving more blood and oxygen into the placenta? Is it that it could be an abruption situation more likely how concerned should women be about whether they do have an anterior placenta if they're V VBAC mom? Can you just talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, well, women will be concerned because they're concerned about everything in pregnancy. Because doesn't that's take a much. No. Spot, it is part of pregnancy is worrying about your baby and yourself. Yes. Um, so what I can say is I have looked after women who have anterior placentas. Um, over a a scar and they've been fine you know the the chances are that it will all be fine but it's just an extra thing to consider so you're right it's it's scar tissue so usually the placenta um kind of attaches itself to the top of the uterus the fundus where all the kind of thick muscles thicker and there's increased blood supply etc so it's not usual for the placenta to attach further down and if it does, it's, it's not an issue. But if there's scar tissue there, then that may interfere with the kind of burrowing of the placenta into the uterine lining. It can interfere with, therefore, blood flow into the placenta. And from my perspective, kind of as a home birth midwife in that scenario, I was more interested in the birth of the placenta after birth in terms of it being attached over a scar and whether or not it would release in the same way. So that was really, for me, more of the concern than anything to do with stillbirth because the stillbirth is still teeny tiny. You know, we're talking again about less than 1%.
1: Quick follow-up to that. So if a woman is planning a VBAC and her placenta does attach over the scar, it by no means is a reason to, um, it's not a contraindication for her VBAC now. She should continue with her plan. Okay. Just wanted to make sure.
2: So it's just a matter of sometimes having a higher risk of a retained placenta after baby is born. If it's attached where there's scar tissue, it's more likely to sort of be embedded and not released as well. Also, if it's lower in the uterus, it doesn't get that nice strong fundal contraction after birth to help it release. So you, you're more likely to have a placenta that is either retained, prolonged, or partial separation which could lead to postpartum hemorrhage
0: yeah so i guess from a provider's perspective you're just aware of that and you, and you set up any way to manage anything like a hemorrhage or a retained placenta but that's in the back of your mind as a provider as a woman hopefully it's not in the back of her mind and she's just birthing as a woman having a baby because that's basically what she is
1: it's such a it's such a difficult thing for us because we want full information and as you said at the outset we will never have full information nor should we seek full information um you know when i teach my clients that when a baby's head touches the perineum and we get this incredible surge of relaxin and the perineum yields it's like i say well that's really cool to know but did you have to know that information or could you just have trusted that nature had a way of ensuring or i teach about um cranial molding. And I say, well, it's really cool. Now, you know, the, the, the plates of the skull can compress and they can even overlap, but did you have to know, or could you just trusted that the baby would come out and nature, nature has this all taken care of with or without your knowledge. Like every other mammal has absolutely no knowledge and awareness, but it's, it's very tempting to want full information because we think it'll bring us a greater sense of security, but really it can increase our anxiety sometimes when we go down that path. It can
0: and I write about that in in my book in the preparation around because I often get asked what you know what childbirth education would you advise blah blah you know and it really depends on the woman the primary the primary focus in that preparation phase which is pregnancy is really cultivating trust in yourself self trust trust that your body knows what it's doing and if you know and it's not blind trust because birth does throw curveballs you know it's it's a potentially dangerous transition for a woman that's why we've got all of these kind of you know that's why all of the rituals were initially evolved to guide the woman through so it is potentially it's chaotic it's uncontrollable etc so ignore while acknowledging that it's about building trust in that your body has evolved to do this and if things are not going well that your instinct will tell you that that you are the expert and to connect in with that and and to really kind of focus inwards for that, that yes, there's people on the outside who are experts in general, but you are actually the expert specifically on yourself and your needs. For some women, having that information about how the baby's head molds and how the perineum functions really helps them to build self-trust. So what I say to women is, What's going to help you build self-trust and what's going to increase your anxiety? And if knowing, I mean, I'm one of those people who likes to know how everything works in order to trust how it works. So I was one of those people who needed to read everything and know everything in order to go, OK, I can now trust that I can do it because I understand it. A lot of women do not feel like that. I look, I, And it doesn't make an impact on the birth. That's the other important thing. You know, I, I see a lot of women who think they need to know all this stuff in order for, to have the birth they want and for birth to work you don't need to know anything your body knows how to birth and um, and your body's not reading the books you don't need to know but if you want to know to build self-trust that's fine I've looked after women who have known everything and I've known looked after women who've known absolutely nothing and there's no difference
2: Rachel, when you are talking about women going into their birth, really not knowing anything, are you specifically talking about the physiology of birth or are we talking about going into birth sort of blindly? Like I don't have to know my choices, my rights, my, the possibility of interventions. Cause we were just having a conversation the other week about how dangerous it can be for women to go into birth with an attitude of, oh, I'm just going to see how it goes. If you're with the wrong provider and you take that approach you're likely to get swept down the funnel of cascade of interventions and end up with
0: on a surgical table yeah no i'm purely talking about the physiology of childbirth so you don't need to know how your body works for it to work however i also wrote in my book about sharing the map which is how providers need to share the map with women and and the key things that women need to know if particularly if they're birthing in a system, which most women are, you know, women who are free birthing aren't, but most women are birthing w- within a system that they need to know their rights, their legal rights, who are they likely to encounter? What are those people's philosophies and culture? What's the culture of the space they're birthing in? Um, and really know, already have planned how to navigate that. So in order to navigate, they need to know the map and then they can plan their plot their pathway through that. So they do need to know that. However, they don't need to know all of the research inside and out because the rights cover that. You know, I've, I've recently been interacting with a woman wanting to know the research to go to her obstetrician to, you know, to back up what it is that she wants to do. You don't have to do that. The, the obstetrician or the, or the care provider who's recommending something It's their obligation, their legal requirement to give you the information to support what it is they're telling you they want to do. There is no obligation the other way. You can say, no, I don't want that. You can add thank you if you want to be polite. You don't even have to do that. No is just, you know, no full stop. You don't have to justify the decisions that you're making.
1: We said this recently, the whole, the very notion of having to justify doing nothing is really unbelievable because of course we should be justifying why to intervene because, and if you, you ask yourself, why, why should, why should it be that way? It's that every cell in your body is planning on a physiologic birth. <laughs> That's the default. So if we're going to intervene in that default method of giving birth and getting in a car and driving somewhere is an intervention, not wearing your own clothes is an intervention and IV, even a Heplock in your, in your arm, in your, in your arm is an intervention. Uh, we don't even appreciate the extent of the interventions that are taking place. You know, the lights on in the room that you wouldn't want on in the room, removing a baby from from the from the mother, bathing the baby. Those are what should be very well justified. But you're right, that knowing your rights takes care of all that because we don't have to go to a jury and get a show of hands and take opinions here and see who agrees. We don't have to negotiate and come to consensus. We get enough information to make our decision. We make it, that's it. So what happens when we get the wrong information? What happens
2: when we the provider says, well, we need to induce you because the placenta is going to expire
0: next week? That's about around questioning, isn't it? And when I used to teach childbirth education, we did a lot around how to question and how to put a question to, you know, because it's probably quite intimidating asking, you know, somebody the medical a medical coat on, and a med- you know this that aura that expert to ask them a question, about how can you frame questions? How can you ask questions? That's a helpful thing to know. But it, you would a- you know ask. So if somebody's saying to you, the placenta stops. Oh, really? Could you show me some more information? I'd like to read about that. Can you send me into the direction where I could read about how the placenta stops working? Because <laughs> it doesn't. And I did that a lot as a midwife, and in particular working with obstetricians, because because what we need to understand is. Obstetricians' intent is good, their pers- but their perspective is different, and you know that a lot of their training is not based on. You know, I've spoken to obstetricians that it. it's not based on research; it's based on cultural norms and ideas about what it is how how to ensure women are safe. So that's their perspective, and um, and often when you ask, they there isn't any research behind that. So I got away with quite a lot, um, particularly in the in the UK, just saying, "Oh well." we're not going to start pushing now because there isn't any evidence to support pushing just because the cervix is open. And they go, oh, okay. You know, it's having that conversation and and realizing that an obstetrician is fantastic at medicine and really good at interventions and really good at keeping women safe during intervention. That's their job, but they're not necessarily going to know all of the research on physiology. And why would they, you know, none of us know all of that. So, you know, don't, just acknowledge that. And, and if you want to know something, then find it out yourself or ask, ask them to direct you to where it is that they're getting that
1: information. It's so highly problematic that they don't bother to learn and medical schools don't value the study of physiology because they mess around with it so much. And they have the arrogance in those schools to believe that they are getting the baby out. And, you know, in the vast majority of births, it's like, I, let me challenge you, try to keep the baby in just try because <laughs> you like nature has every method of getting this baby out with or without your participation. But the very notion that they have to get the baby out is, you know, it's great that they know medicine. You know, I have to say that to my clients, ask the right people, go to the right person for the information you need. Don't ask me About medicine. Don't ask your pediatrician for breastfeeding advice just because you're sitting in the office breastfeeding when they walk in and want to tell you to start getting the baby on a schedule. But to know medicine, it's so valuable, but it isn't if they don't exactly know when to use it. Yeah. And I I think that's
0: a battle we're not going to win because the textbooks, even the midwifery textbooks are incorrect because the text, you know, it all happened when birth moved into hospital settings. Obstetric knowledge developed from a time when birth had moved into hospital, when it was pathological. So physiological birth was still happening at home out of the way. So they really learned how to support, and use that in quotes, birth from women who needed medical interventions. And then when all birth moved into hospital and midwifery ended up, Coming under nursing and was moved into the medical system. That's really when all of that, those textbooks were written and all of that knowledge was was kind of being written down, was from observing women who were often in twilight sleep on their backs, having babies removed by instruments. So this was not birth physiology. So our entire textbooks on physiology, I've got a you know, book in my cabinet called Physiology of Childbirth. It's actually what happens when a woman is on her back with a doctor or midwife doing things to her to make the things happen. That's what we're seeing as physiology. So we're kind of missing the point. And we keep when the textbooks are um, re-updated, all they do is use the same information and change the pictures a little bit. But it's still the same terminology. It's still based on stages of labor, which we know don't happen, according to latest research and women's experiences. It's based on the cervix opening, which we know it doesn't do in that way that the textbooks tell us. It's based on the mechanism of birth and which doesn't happen. You know, if women are physiologically birthing, the mechanism absolutely does happen. If somebody's down there pulling the baby's head to make it do particular things on the way out, then that reinforces the mechanism. So our real baseline knowledge, that textbook learning that we get in obstetric learning and in midwifery education is incorrect when it comes to physiology. And then we have practitioners going out into practice, never seeing physiology never not intervening in a birth because we're taught to do that. That's our entire training as midwives is how to do things, not how to be. So, of course, nobody knows how to support physiology or understands physiology. So, when women are coming wanting a physiological birth in a setting where it doesn't happen and nobody knows how to support it, they're almost set up to failure. And then the women are made to feel like they failed, not the system. When it was the system that failed, not the women. It's, it's crazy. You're so right. I mean, what we, we really need
2: to learn as birth providers is to sit back and let it happen. And it's so hard to do. I mean, I, even as a home birth midwife, I, it, it takes restraint to step back and not want to have your hands in there not feel like you're meant to do something, to support something, to make something happen, because that was my training.
0: Mine too. You know, I was trained to do all kinds of important things as the baby was being born and during labour to make sure the woman was not
2: doing them. Scolded as a student
0: if you didn't put your hands in the right place and do the right thing. That's still happening. That's still happening. That students are, you know, students are assessed based on how well they do the interventions. That's it. They're not assessed on how well they are with women, on how they advocate for women, because that's not what the system wants. So. And you're right, it's 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 really hard. And it's also hard because as providers we have an ego and that's kind of stoked that we're really important and you know that we, we need to do these things and we feel this level of responsibility and kind of power, I guess, in the doing of the thing. And it's a huge learning curve, or I found a huge learning curve to actually sort myself out, sort my ego out, step back and realize that when it comes to physiology, I'm actually redundant and I I I'm not needed. And my skill as a midwife, what women are paying me to do when I'm at a home birth, they're paying me for what I don't do, what I'm capable of doing, hopefully, and that I don't ever have to do. That's what my job is.
3: Hey there, all you amazing, strong and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure, designed for pregnancy, during pregnancy.
2: Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And postpartum soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum soothe can be prepared any time during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product we bring you needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy to take vanilla powder. Perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order.
1: So let me put this question out. Yesterday, when I was teaching hypnobirthing to my class, one woman said, Cynthia, because I talk all the time about what you keep saying, you have your best asset is your intuition, and you are going to need to cultivate this and rely on it as a mother, I assure you. The rest of your life, Um, when you're 90 and your kids are 60, you're still going to want to be relying on that intuition to, to assure you that things are okay. And a woman asked in class, how do I learn to better trust my own intuition? I know what I said to respond to her, but I would love to hear what what both of you have to say to that too. How would you respond to that? Because women are listening to this and they're thinking, well, how do I know I can trust my intuition? Or how do I know what's the difference between the fear in my mind and the intuition in in my soul or in my body? And again, that's to me like the
0: childbirth education question. It's about that woman working out what it is that she needs to trust her intuition. intuition. What, what does she need to help her connect into her body? Because we, we live lives that are very disconnected from our bodies. How can she, what does she, some women it's yoga. You know, they enjoy yoga. That helps them connect into their bodies. Because really intuition is about, you know, being connected, so deeply connected into your body that you, you know, feel things and you trust your body um some women it's yoga some women it's hypnobirthing some women it really what is it that she needs for her to build trust in herself and in her intuition that's that would be my answer to that
2: it's a hard question it's a really hard thing i think it's a really hard thing to explain how to learn um but for me I think that the most confusing part of understanding our intuition is trying to separate out fear from intuition because it really can feel it's louder really feel like, yeah, exactly. It's louder. But once you can start to know in your body physically, how you respond to fearful and anxious thoughts versus good thoughts, the right thoughts, the, the true intuitive hits, it's daily practice trying to distinguish between those two things. And it's like a muscle,
0: it grows. And I think it's also about see, it, really feeling where that fear is coming from. Is it coming from outside in? Or is it fear that's arising from inside you? Because listen to that. You know, I've looked after a number of women who have just said, I just feel not right. There's something, I just feel fearful. And I don't feel, I feel there's something not right here. And they're usually Absolutely spot on because they're listening to what's arising from within them, so it's learning, as you said to work out what what is incoming where is the fear coming from in outside into me and generating fear, or am I actually really deeply connected and feeling this sense of fear that's telling me something that is my intuition speaking and it's really difficult
1: it is, and when I was asked this question, I came up with two things yesterday, and I'm still thinking about it and wondering how else to, to get women thinking about cultivating that intuition or trusting the intuition they already have. The first thing I said was look for opportunities and stories in your life up till this point where you did have good intuition or create a story around it. So you can create that belief. So look for any time in life, let's say, um, you know, the first time I laid eyes on one of my best friends in college, I was just overwhelmed with this affection for her and this this feeling that she was already my friend. And I said, I I've used that in my life, and she has too because it was mutual. And we joke about it, but you can use an opportunity like that to say, Well, look at what good intuition I have. I just knew, and or when you knew something wasn't going to work out, or when you knew you were going to end up. In, in a certain company working for a certain job, but f- consciously use your conscious mind to find times to create that story, to intentionally build a belief that you have good intuition. And this is never about whether the belief is right or wrong. It is simply a matter that the belief will serve you. If you take it in, if you believe it, believing it will serve you. And then the only other thing I came up with, you both already talked about, I just said, it's a matter of getting quiet of quieting the mind.
2: I was going to, I was going to say, I I absolutely think that if you can learn to practice meditation, even if it's just for five or 10 minutes a day, but you do it consistently and you can get into that quiet, calm space, that's when you get downloads. Like it, it actually just happens. You'll be sitting in meditation and a thought will hit you. And it's, those are what I call like intuitive hits. It's like, Oh, that's right. That's right. That's a correct feeling. That's a correct decision. That's a correct instinct. But it it does keep getting quiet. If if you're not quiet, how does it reach you?
0: And physiology helps, you know, pregnancy is a time when you've got really high progesterone, particularly towards the end. Progesterone is is the hormone that we that we release in our second half of our menstrual cycle that really introspective drawing in, connecting inwards creative, you know, sense. So your body's doing it for you. It's actually encouraging you to draw in, to draw in and listen and connect. So understanding that can sometimes help. You know, the physiology of child, and that's why you know I, I wrote childbirth, and um, reclaiming childbirth as rite of passage, and followed the pattern of physiological childbirth to explore that because actually in that preparation phase. Women are set up to do that, ready for that birth where you go draw even more deeply into yourself to just be still.
2: Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere.
1: Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself.
0: And I actually had, I did a, um, talking about being still and listening to intuition. It was <laughs> I did a, a wilderness solo quest thing where I actually had to go off for three days by myself with nothing to read or nothing to... I'm a very mind, busy, busy mind person. I wasn't allowed to take anything. I just had to sit in the middle of the bush in Australia. Mm. Um, it was actually a fire had just run up the mountain a few weeks before. So everything was burnt and ash. And I just sat, sat there for three days. And that's when I, I just knew I needed to write the book. That was my download, if you like, of You need to actually combine all of your experience and writings and your PhD, yes, but you need to create something that you need to write a book. So that's what I did. And in the front cover, I didn't think about this until until a few months back, actually. So, you know, the cover's got that little golden goddess on the front. I was doing a shamanic drum journey with Jane Hardrick on a retreat, and all I kept getting in my vision was a um, production line of goddesses. It was really odd. And it was like a production line of, of goddesses being made, little golden ones coming out the other end, like a factory. That is really weird. I don't know where that's come from. And then, you know, Anna Day, who designed the book cover, created the book cover. And then it wasn't until a few <laughs> weeks back, I kind of went, oh, look at that, a production line of lots of oh, <laughs> wow. goddesses oh, wow. on a book.
1: Oh, my God. Wow,
2: so she designed that. You didn't have any part in that design. You recognized it
0: after no I didn't recognize until maybe a few few weeks months ago and I looked at the cover of the book and I remembered that drum journey Hmm. that was just really odd because I hadn't gone into I'd gone in to do something else um I find the drum journeys really helpful because they really kind of stop my brain from thinking and really get into that creative phase so I'd come out of that drum journey going what the hell was that about that wasn't that wasn't at all what I was wanting And then looked at the book a few months back and went, Oh my God, that was the shape of the goddess. And that there was lots of them coming off production line of little gold goddesses.